There's not a baby in the piano case. We're okay. Good, day, good evening. I'm Colin, if I've not met you before. Nice to have you with us. So, who's been watching the World Cup? What is the matter with you? The whole world, except Australia, is watching the FIFA World Cup in Russia right now. And the, the World Cup is supposed to be a showcase, but not just of football, soccer, you call it, but football, proper football. Rightly or wrongly, the people involved in this tournament are seen as ambassadors for their country. So how they behave on and off the pitch um, really gives you uh, an impression, not just about them, but about their country. So, for example, the Germans, they had to apologise because they played Sweden and scored a goal in the last minute, okay? And two of their staff went up to the Swedish dugout and were like in their face, celebrating right in the face, really aggressively. And no one's really surprised because the German, you know, so there you go. Whereas this, this guy on the uh, right in the waistcoat, that's Gareth Southgate. Now, he's England's manager, okay? And the guy he's consoling is a Colombian player. England have just beaten Colombia on penalties, and this is one of the guys that missed. And so he's gone over to the, op- the opposition team and consoled him, because Gareth Southgate's been there himself. He missed a penalty, famously. Proper English gentleman, you see. So we've got a bad ambassador... You Germans, good ambassador. Bad ambassadors, good ambassadors. So I want to ask you tonight, what kind of ambassador, what kind of representative are you? So maybe for your family, you represent your family, or perhaps where you work, do you represent your workplace well? What about for this church? What about 6pm church, Trinity Church Brighton? And if your friends and family know you as a Christian, are you a good ambassador for God? Do you represent him well? Um, I've got a... I was busy washing my hair, so I didn't do an outline for you on your leaflets, but that's the headings we'll have, and that is roughly how to space them out. If you're into that case. People care about these things, okay? You get complaints if you space out the headings wrongly. So... There you go. If that's you, that's your help. Um, This second oracle or message that Malachi has from God is specifically for the people who were supposed to be God's ambassadors, the priests. So they were supposed to represent God to the people and represent the people to God, kind of a go-between. And last week, we saw that Uh, God's people, Israel, they kind of had God on trial. So they were doing the accusing, asking God, how have you loved us? Because they weren't sure that God loved them. This week, the tables are turned. The rest of Malachi, actually, the tables are turned. God is the one asking the questions, particularly of his ambassadors, the priests. So um, our first heading, heading, Trial. So I've given the headings a kind of a courtroom sort of theme. The priests are on trial. So these priests, their job, it wasn't just their job actually, it was their whole family lineage was about this, was, was about knowing exactly what right worship of God looked like. And God accuses them, um, middle of chapter 1 verse 6, 
It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? So they're the ones accused. Now some background about priests and all this sacrifice stuff. It's a little bit weird, isn't it? Well, God had chosen his people, Israel, but he hadn't left them wondering how it was they were supposed to worship him, how they were supposed to love him and thank him in practical ways. See, God had given them detailed instructions, the Torah, or the law, Torah means instruction, um, about how to live out loving him with all their heart and soul and mind. He told them exactly how to go about dealing the fact that he is a holy God living amongst them, yet they were sinful. And so he set up this whole system of sacrifices, offerings, which would help his people to understand in very visceral, practical, everyday earthy ways how great God is and how serious sin is. So if you're a subsistence farmer, you basically live off what you grow or the animals you raise and you have to sacrifice one of your best animals for sin, you get a more serious sense of how serious sin is. And so if you read Leviticus, you might feel a bit bogged down by all the rules and regulations, but actually that was very freeing because everybody knew, everyone was on the same page. Everybody knew exactly what was expected of them, of them and if they went wrong, how to make things right. And if you didn't know or you'd forgotten, you had a whole family line of priests who were there to teach you and help you to get it right. That was their role. So in Malachi, the problem we've got is those men chosen to get it right and to help you to get it right, they were getting it wrong. They were getting it wrong in two ways. In defiled sacrifices and distorted truth. Defiled sacrifices and distorted truth. So first, defiled sacrifices. Uh, Verse 6 again. 1 verse 6. It is you priests who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? So it was the priest's job to make sure that the animals people brought for sacrificial offerings were unblemished, they weren't defiled. So that is, they were sort of the, the tip-top condition ones. Defiled means they were somehow not whole. And doing that, bringing an animal that was considered whole, undefiled, it helped the people to understand that their sin made them unwhole and that they needed God to restore them and that their the sacrifice was the way to win that restoration. But the priests were letting them get away with just fobbing off God with limping or blind animals or even animals that they found like roadkill. Like animals that didn't really cost them, that they weren't really bothered about. The priests were helping the people to say, she'll be right, and just go through the motions and just pay like tokenistic lip service to God. So last thing we saw that God's people were questioning if God loved loved them, 
And this is the result of that doubt. Half-hearted, just sort of surface-level worship. So, a good lamb or sort of a limpy, lame lamb, why did it matter? Well, it mattered because the quality of their sacrifice, it revealed their heart attitude to God. It showed, when they sacrificed the dodgy animal, that they thought God didn't really matter. Like their worship didn't really make any difference. And so they just gave God their dregs, their leftovers. But what about us? Being a follower of Jesus means being a priest of the world. We looked at that in 1 Peter. Um, A priest of the world representing Jesus in order to bring blessings to the world. But we don't sacrifice animals, do we? Be a whole lot extra to do for setup for tonight, wouldn't it? If we had to do an altar and go to bring a little lamb or a pigeon or something. Wouldn't want to be on pack up either. Uh, Romans 12, chapter, uh, verse 1, says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and po- proper worship. So we don't need to sacrifice animals because Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to pay for our sins, and we'll talk about that later. But we are called to respond to that truth. Um, not When it says whole bodies, it doesn't mean we're going to start sacrificing people. No. But it just means that we, we are to offer our whole lives in response. To offer our whole self in worship. Because Malachi, um, God points out through Malachi to the, to the priest there and to us, We know how to show honour and respect to people, don't we? So 1 verse 6, A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due to me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. A son, we know how in relationships where we know we're supposed to show respect and honour, we do that with people. And then verse 8, he really puts his finger on it, doesn't he? This must have been really convicting. These dodgy tr- sacrifices, try, try offering them to your governor. So Israel would have, been, uh, have had a Persian governor at the time. Try offering them to your governor. Will he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? In other words, since we know we wouldn't get away with fobbing off people with second best, we shouldn't think we can shortchange God. We can't on the one hand say that we honour and respect God and on the other hand only offer him our leftovers. Now what I don't want to do here is just beat us all up and just accuse us all of half-hearted worship and and only sort of giving God our leftovers. Because I know that lots of you I've seen firsthand that you don't hold back in serving, giving of yourself. Um, You really give um, sometimes more than you feel you've got in the tank. In God's service, in loving him. But it is always worth asking ourselves, 
Is God getting our best, or is he just getting what's left over? Is God getting our best in our, in our worship of him, in our serving of one another? Uh, does God get our best in our approach to reading the Bible, in our striving for holiness? Is our love of God what drives and motivates how we spend our energy, what what motivates what we love and value. See, those priests in Malachi, they brought second-rate sacrifices because they didn't think that God, present in a special way behind the curtain in that temple, they didn't think he was really paying attention. They didn't think he was going to make much difference. Well, what about us when we come to church tonight? Do we come here expecting to meet a king? Do we come expecting to engage with the living God? Do we bring him our heartfelt worship? Is that reflected in how, you, how we sing? Is that reflected on what time we get here? Or I, was at, I did a sermon this morning and... Um, so the, the, easy, the very easy application from this is to work out how you spend your Saturday so that you can be at church on Sunday and be, be like really there, not just turn up, but you know, be really there and engaged. And, but I felt a bit guilty about preaching that application because last night England were playing and the match began at 11.30 and I was up till half one. So you don't want to get legalistic about these things. I'm not saying never do anything on a Saturday. But we can arrange our week generally usually, when there's no World Cup on, to make Sundays, to, make it, to be fully functioning and present, really present for God and others on a Sunday. Um, I, I, I was convicted right in this sermon as well about do I turn up willing to be emotionally engaged with God? I am English, but I do have some emotions there somewhere. Um, like I was watching England play last night and I was very emotionally engaged, okay? I frightened my daughter, Miv, because I was shouting at the telly and things. And... But would I turn up at church and engage emotionally like that with God? With that intensity? I don't know. Bringing our true offering, um, our, our true offering from our heart will look different for different people in different situations. Um, so in our own family, we've um, had times where we've been serving in heaps of ways and then had to drop heaps of things because of health or age and stage and that sort of thing. So you've got to be wise about it. Our sacrifice, though, it should reflect our heart. It should be like true heart sacrifice. But how do we grow our heart's desire to love God, to really want to honor him? Well, we need to keep feeding on his word to know the truth about him, to really know who God is. See, the problem in Malachi is that the priests have distorted the truth and it's led people astray. They've distorted the truth about God and it's led them astray. So, chapter 2, from verse 7. For the lips of a priest ought to preserve knowledge. Because he is the messenger of the Lord, 
Almighty, and people seek instruction from his mouth. But you have turned from the way, and by your teaching have caused many to stumble. You have violated the covenant with Levi, says the Lord Almighty. So the, the people have been offering dodgy sacrifices because they're half-hearted towards God. And they're half-hearted towards God because they don't know that God loves them. And why don't they know? It's because the priests have failed to show them who God is, to show them the truth about God through his word, through his instruction. So we grow in our love of God and our desire to honor him, genuinely de- genuine desire with our lives by knowing him through his word in the Bible. So for those of us charged with teaching God words, that means things like, so if, like people like me and Cameron and um, growth group leaders, it means handling God's, we should handle God's word faithfully. And it means sometimes teaching hard words from the Bible. Um, for all of us, it means when we're being taught from the Bible or when you're reading the Bible for yourself, really expecting God to speak to us through it. And ask, asking him to do that. It means coming to church or going to a Bible study, ready and expecting to do business with God. And it means opposing false teaching when we come across it. You don't have to be antsy about it. Just be nice. Just say, if you hear some false teaching, just say, oh, where, where do you get that from the Bible? Simple place to start. Our role, this is our role as a royal priesthood. Our role as a role, our role as a royal priesthood is to mediate, to go between God's blessing to the world by doing all we do to honour God and point people to Jesus, to represent God well, and we do that by knowing and teaching His Word grows us in our love of him. And we do that by bringing God our best, our first, in our serving, our worship, our language, our conduct, everything that we do. So that's the first point, the trial. So what's the verdict? Our second point at the end of the trial Well, it turns out that God really cares. He really cares about his name. So when we say um, God's name, we mean the sense of who, not just his title, but the sense of who he is, um, what what he's like, the idea of just knowing what God is like. So God really hates it when his name is dishonored, when people are given the wrong idea about him, when people miss out on him. And the verdict on the priests is guilty as charged. And I don't know if you noticed, as um, Jen read that, the judgment's pretty stark. So Malachi chapter 1, verse 10. Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you, says the Lord Almighty, and I will accept no offering from your hands. And this is actually really surprising, because if you look at Ezra and Nehemiah and Hosea, those books, there's a whole kerfuffle 
about getting the temple rebuilt. That seems really important to God and his people. And yet now, God is so fed up of how meaningless their offerings have become that he'd rather shut up shop altogether. So in chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, God warns the priests that he's going to curse them. And then verse 3, it's it's a lovely quotable verse, this one, isn't it? Chapter 2, verse 3. You can just see this on a a nice little picture from Kurong hanging on your wall at your entrance hall to your house. Because of you, I will rebuke your descendants. I will smear on your faces the dung from your festival sacrifices, and you'll be carried off with it. It's pretty horrible, isn't it? What God's saying there is that, so the dung, the, you have to get into a bit of butchery now. So the sacrifices would have basically have all the guts pulled out and that would be taken away and burned outside the city wall because it's considered, considered unclean, not surprisingly. So God is saying, because you're treating me like rubbish, I'm going to treat you like rubbish. Those are available for 9.99 after the service if you want to put one up on your own. Uh, finally, in verse 9, God promises that the priests will be despised and humiliated. It's pretty full on, isn't it? Pretty harsh judgment. And can we draw a straight line? So they're priests and we're called the royal priesthood. Can we draw a straight line that this is a warning for us as well? If you're a Christian, Jesus has saved you. Your salvation is secure. There's no doubt about that. Don't let me introduce any doubt that if you're a Christian, you are saved. Your salvation is secure. You're going to spend eternity as Jesus' brother or sister. Yet we will all have to give an account. So in the end of giving an account, it's going to be Jesus' record that counts, not our own, which we can be thankful for. But uh, have a look at this from 1 Corinthians. Fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaped in through the flames. So what we do counts. We'll have to give it an account for it. It doesn't mean you won't get saved. But will we want to stand before God our King... And explain to him why we treated him as runner-up in our heart stakes. Will we want to stand before God and explain to him why people got the wrong idea about him because of us? God takes the honour of his name very seriously. And be warned, we, we can't fool God. You know, we can fake it, but God knows our heart. We can't fool God, but we can, like the priests in Malachi seems to have done. We can fool ourselves. We can convince ourselves and others that what is unacceptable is acceptable. And that can lead us down a path of sin, which is really hard to come back from, will cause untold damage and dishonors God. So heed the warning given the priest in Malachi. 
But just why is God so severe with them, with these priests? It's because he wants to keep his promise of life and peace. He wants to give his people a life sentence. That's our third heading, if you're taking notes. A life sentence. Sorry, I just lost my place. So even though uh, God's people have been unfaithful, he remains faithful to his promises to bring life and blessing. So have a look at chapter 1, verse 11, because in all this doom and gloom, this verse kind of sticks out like a, a pure, fluffy white lamb. It says, My name will be great amongst the nations. From where the sun rises to where it sets, in every place, incense and pure offerings will be brought to me, because my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord Almighty. So in contrast to these priests who can't even bring a proper offering to God in his own temple, the whole world is going to worship rightly from wherever they are. Now this isn't a universalist idea that all religions lead to God that really we're all kidding ourselves and we're all worshipping the same God. No, it's, this isn't talking about now. This is talking about when God returns, when Jesus returns and God's final judgment day. And we know that because that where the sun rises to where it sets language is in other bits of the Bible where it's talking about the end time. So God is looking forward to when Jesus returns and the whole world knows who he is, and actually worshipping him. The whole world will at last be doing what it was made for, what it's most blessed doing, glorifying God. And how will God do this? Well, have a look at God's explanation for why he's doing this discipline of the priests. Uh, so from verse, chapter 2, verse 4. And you'll know that I've sent you this warning, so that my covenant with Levi may continue, says the Lord Almighty. My covenant was with him, a covenant of life and peace, and I gave them to him. This called for reverence, and he revered me and stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and nothing false was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and turned many from sin. So Levi, Levi himself, if you read Genesis, was not a great guy. So God's talking about basically his descendants, the whole Levite priesthood, in the same way last week we talked about Jacob and Esau representing whole nations. But when you read those verses we just read, there's actually only ever been one Israelite who could truly be described like that, and that's Jesus. Uh, in the New Testament, the book of Hebrews is really helpful for helping us to see how Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and how Jesus is the greater than many of the things. He's a greater king, greater prophet, greater than angels, and so on. And he's a greater priest. So this is Hebrews 7, 26, describing Jesus. Such a high priest truly meets our need, one who is holy, blameless, pure, 
set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Unlike the other high priests, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. So Jesus is not a Levite, and yet he is the ultimate priest. He's perfectly faithful, always pleasing to God without sin. So because he didn't have any need to atone for his own sin, his sacrifice for us, if we'll accept it, counts once and for all. Jesus' sacrifice on the cross doesn't symbolize some, our sin being paid for or point to something else. On the cross, Jesus actually achieves our sin being paid for. So Jesus is the perfect priest, he's the perfect offering, and he represents God perfectly. To know Jesus, if you know Jesus, you know God. He represents God perfectly, and he presents us perfect before God. Represents God perfectly, and presents us perfect before God. So the priesthood, the sacrificial system, sacrificing animals, all of that, it was like watching the trailer, the short for a movie. It's like watching the movie trailer that pointed to Jesus, the full-length 3D IMAX feature-length movie. Through Jesus, God will be faithful to his promise to bring life, peace, and blessing. And the challenge is, how will we do our time in the meantime until Jesus returns? Our last heading, doing your time. So God is faithful, will we be? And if we are, why will we be faithful? Because what we don't want to be doing is living an outwardly godly life for all the wrong reasons. Because it is possible we can offer ourselves, and it's, it's possible for that offering to be blemished. So it's, it's blemished when we do the right thing to make us feel better about ourselves. Just to convince ourselves that God ought to love us because we're pretty good and he should really give us an easy, easy ride. We blemish our offering of ourselves when we do the right thing out of fear or out of guilt Because then, really, when it comes to it, we're really just doing the right thing for our own sake to relieve our, ease our fears or relieve our guilt. Now, to be really faithful and truly offer ourselves, we need the heart change that the gospel brings. So, in Titus 2, we read how grace teaches us. So, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Saviour, Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness. He redeemed us to purify for himself a people 
that are his very own, eager to do what is good. Eager to do what is good. Not doing good because we feel we ought to. See, the gospel is that because Jesus gave himself for us, we're already safe, we're already secure, we're already accepted. We're fully loved by God. So we don't need to prove ourselves or save ourselves. And so we're free to be eager to do what is good for no other reason than to glorify God. See, God is faithful. He's already begun to bring us peace and life and blessing. And he'll bring them to full completion when Jesus returns. Until then, we're called to live as a kingdom of priests. So remember from 1 Peter, you are a, ch- you, you are a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are God's special possession that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That's who we are. And our job is to represent God to the world, to mediate his blessing. We're ambassadors. We're holding out the message of our king, the good news about Jesus. And how do we do that? By sacrificially giving our best from a willing heart, an eager heart. Hearts warmed as we read and we talk about and we share the gospel of Jesus. Amen.